I never really considered blending my trained skill of medicine with technology until I was out there and practicing. And I realized the technology I was dealing with was suboptimal to make the decisions that I needed to make. And yeah, there's lots of doctors out there looking after patients. There's not a whole lot of doctors out there thinking about the systems that support doctors. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Medical technology thought leader by day, computer gamer by night, Dr. Simon Cause, Chief Medical Officer at Microsoft, is a physician, business strategist, and technologist who, by his own admission, is drawn to bright, shiny objects. But a commitment to make medicine safer and better through technology has been his career guiding light. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shewitz. And I'm Lisa Sunan, and we're grateful to Metadata for their sponsorship today. Metadata, the intelligent platform for life sciences that closes the loop between clinical development and commercialization to power smarter treatments and healthier people. So, David, do you, yes, play, Lisa. <laughs> do you play any uh, computer games? You know, I kind of feel like I, I don't so much. I feel like I see them, and I feel like, ah. I think when I was like a kid, you know, there's like Castle Wolfenstein and Pong and some of those, but <laughs> wow, oh, no, no, Pong. Yeah, yeah. We're back in the day. And it was, I know. You know what? Do you remember Breakout or Brickout or that? You know, the thing, there's a paddle on the left and the oh, brick. Boink, 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 wow. boink, boink. All right. All right. Now, now you're, wait, how can I freak you out with some age issue? This is, <laughs> that's ridiculous. What about uh, you? What, you know, I, the only thing I really play and I played obsessively is, is uh, online Scrabble. Huh. With people I don't know. Oh, like words or whatever that call that yeah, thing is. Yeah, yeah. that one. I, <laughs> I love that game, but and I can't find anybody to play with me at home because I always beat everybody. All right, well I'll set you up with my <laughs> I'll set you up with my mother in law because she plays it all the time and apparently it's pretty good. And speaking of gamers, today we welcome Dr. Simon Cause to our show. Hi Simon. Hi Lisa. Hi David. Great to be here. Hello. Simon hails from Australia but spends a lot of time hanging around the continent, the magical world where Witcher Three takes place. Witcher 3, for those of you who don't, who don't know, and I didn't know, is a very popular open-world role-playing game where you get to be a monster slayer. I think it's funny, Simon, that you're a doctor focused on healing by day but love to play a game that's grisly and violent by night. What gives? What is it about, about this game that gets your juices flowing? So you're right, the game is grisly and violent. Um, there's hack and slash and the rest of it, but it's also a very powerful storytelling game with long arching goals that go through the whole thing. And there are some really tender moments in it. There's a strong theme of romance that goes between the protagonist and his his life love partner. Um, so there's a lot in the game beyond just the, the hack and slash, but absolutely it's engaging. It transports me to another place and it engages my conscious mind and lets my subconscious work on other things. So I find after a session, a bit like meditation, I'm refreshed and ready to approach things with a clean perspective. By the way, I think there's something really to that because um, my, my wife likes you know to relax at the end of the yeah. day. She'll play like Heyday or one of these like computer games. Yeah. And it's just sort of like, I think, absorbing and distracting. Yeah. No, I think it's true. Uh, and I think it's really interesting because the, the game that you like, Simon, features a lot of technologies that are near and dear to your heart in other contexts like AI and virtual reality, but also relies on human decision-making and empathy. So I'm wondering if you see this as relevant or a derivative of what you do by day. 
that's a really interesting point. So I have been fascinated by technology my whole life. I love to see how it's evolved, especially in the last five years. This concept of artificial intelligence has been augured for so long in popular culture, movies and the rest of it. I think we're now actually seeing it come to pass. And one of the things that has always been foreshadowed in popular culture is the potential for artificial intelligence to turn bad. And in my day job, uh, myself and my colleagues at Microsoft, we spend a lot of time thinking about the ethics behind artificial intelligence, trying to guide that potential future in a way um, that makes sure that we get maximum good and avoid the pitfalls. Yeah, this is, it's such an interesting topic, I think. And, um, you know, I mean, people have been talking about uh, AI, you know, taking over for people since the 70s or something like that. And so far, thank goodness it hadn't happened. But you... Uh, were not, at least in your mind, predestined to be a doctor, you had, but you did have your first computer at age 12, and you were part of a very medical family. So you said there was always an affinity between tech and medicine in your house, that it was table talk. What do you mean by that? What did you talk <laughs> sorry, about? Sorry for going medical for a second, but two radiologists as parents, they used to come home and discussing barium enemas was appropriate dinner room conversation. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know at the time. Um, but... It just so happened that as I was thinking through my careers and my options, medicine was a comfortable place, but as I've gotten to know myself better, technology is my love. And the, the concept that I can bring those two together now in the profession that I have is profoundly rewarding. So you really felt the affinity more for technology than for sort of medicine and health? Is that how you'd frame it? Yeah, and I think as we're, as we're young, we we have these things that we do really enjoy and then we kind of put those on hold and say, okay, in my grown-up life, I have to do X and this is something I'll do as an afterthought. I never really considered blending my my trained skill of medicine with technology until I was out there and practicing. And I realized the technology I was dealing with was suboptimal to make the decisions that I needed to make. And yeah, there's lots of doctors out there looking after patients. There's not a whole lot of doctors out there thinking about the systems that support doctors. Um, and I think we need that for good, safe, safe, efficient processes and systems so that we can deliver the best care. You said uh, to me that spending time in critical care as a, as a doctor was really what drove you to end up in tech companies, that you were concerned about the fragmentation, concerned about the communication, concerned about the mistakes that got made as a result. What Can you tell us a little bit, you know, a story about that experience? What was really maybe the pivotal moment for you when you realized it was time to uh, maybe get out of practice and into something more connected with technology? Yeah. Look, we meant doctors differently in Australia where I come from. Um, you, you are a generic doctor and you're thrown out into the system and then you rotate around every 10 weeks and you do something different. So I did everything from critical chem medicine to anaesthetics, geriatrics, um, I delivered babies in obstetrics and gurney. Uh, but for me, it all came together in critical care because that's when the stakes were high, time was short, decisions mattered. And at that stage, you have to have the right information at hand to make the very best decision. And my practicing experience, and I won't tell you how many years ago it was, but things have moved on a little bit, was that I never had the right information at hand. I always had to use my best educated guesses. And uh, 
touch wood, I don't think I caused any specific patient harm or killed anyone, but had I have chosen critical care as my profession, I projected that career path out. And over the course of a practicing 30-year span, it's almost inevitable that I would have killed patients, not because they were sick and unwell because of their disease process, but simply by virtue of this complex and sometimes unsafe system, would have given the wrong medication um, to a patient that we knew had documented allergies or given the wrong medication to the wrong patient, which happens all the time. So you left practice, or at least full-time practice, to set out to, quote-unquote, fix medicine. What were you thinking about when you when you left and, and you know, you were thinking, I know you were thinking about EMRs and feeling, feeling like that was, you know, a path to, to righteousness and good. Um, what happened? What was that like, that change in experience from the med- medical world to the business world and, and all of the rest? Yeah, look, it was pretty naive. I didn't really think it through entirely. Um, but I did see a big opportunity, and I thought to get into that field, I needed to know some technology that I didn't write then. So I took a leave of absence. Um, in it, I started a d- diploma of software engineering that was self-paced. Um, I loved it. I ate it up, and I accelerated an 18-month course, and I'd gotten through most of it within 12 months. And then I landed myself my first job in a health tech company, um, and they made clinical systems, and I was hooked. I was a business analyst. I was the liaison between the clinicians coming up with the system design and the developers coding it in and then making sure on the back end through QA that they'd coded what the customer had asked for, and we were making these systems. I, At that stage, I felt like I was actualizing. I wanted to make systems that made healthcare better and safer, and that's what I was doing. Did you feel that um, uh, you were sort of the intermediary or you were sort of more the translator where you were sort of able to help the engineers understand the problems to be solved? Yeah, it was both. I, I was part of a team, of course. It wasn't all on my shoulders, um, but... Much of the time, there were the developers who needed to understand the clinical workflow and process because it wasn't there in the um, in the written description, and I could bring that to life. So part of it was translation, um, but part of it was that intermediary. the The customer needs needed an embodiment or a representation there. And as the doctor on the team, that was my job. We had some nurses and some a health information manager and a pharmacist, and we all played our respective roles. So you, you went through a couple companies, including Cerner, a fairly extensive experience there. And you've said that your big epiphany was that digitization is not the same as transformation. Yeah. What, what was that about? What happened there? So look, um, my my espoused goal was to put in these electronic medication management systems that prevented us giving medications to the wrong patient or the wrong medication to a patient that we knew was allergic. And uh, when I did a market scan in Australia, Cerner was the best position to deliver that. So I spent six years and we took the digital maturity of hospitals in Australia from a very low level to putting in these electronic medication management systems And as these systems started to go in and they were used in anger at the clinical coalface, I realized that, (laughs) I realized that we'd actually digitized the system of record, but we hadn't put in some of the surrounding capabilities that allowed 
us to get maximal value out of them. So we put in a clinical information system, but there was no mobility or point of care strategy. So it didn't go down to the patient bedside. There was not a whole lot of communication and collaboration within the tool. So a lot of the communications were still happening back and forth with pager systems and they were never documented. Um, and there was a lot of information capture which frustrated the clinicians because there was not a whole lot of insight coming back. So my awareness or my epiphany at the time was, oh my goodness, systems of record are important, but without the systems of insight and engagement, they fall short of their of their goal. Um, and that was my real life. Boy, Simon, that strikes me as such an important point. I mean, when I think about, you know, um, on the pharma side, but more generally, I, what, what physicians complain about, I mean, I think you've captured it beautifully. It's, you know, essentially... You know, many, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a, um, a researcher in a company, in an, in an academic organization, there's often a tendency to feel like you've become a data entry clerk where you're sort of entering data, entering data, entering data, and to what end? Um, you know, wh- where's the insight? Where's the help coming back? And um, is, is, is this sort of what you're trying, what, what, what you noticed as well? Yeah, absolutely. When I think about the heritage of these systems, um, some of them grew out of being billing platforms. Others were trying to leave a digital medico-legal footprint so that after the fact, you could figure out care for the next time the patient came in or, heaven forbid, if there was an incident, you could backtrack through the medical record and figure it out. But they weren't meant to be real-time systems that made the most of the information that was in there and served it up to you in very actionable ways. In many respects, they were the 1.0 embodiment of the paper record, which was a passive tool. And the potential for digital is so much more than that. But isn't part of the issue that um, to go, I mean, uh, to go from innovation to implementation as um, so many have written, is a is a really complicated process. And what may be naive is the assumption that you're going to, did you know that you're going to start to, uh, to add technology, and then everything is going to magically improve. And in reality, it's inevitable. If you look at almost uh, James Besson wrote a whole book, Learning by Doing, that just focused on this exact the beginning part of the book is focused on this whole concept that to make changes. There's a there's like a many many years delay that's typical from the, the time a discovery comes available to the time people really figure out how to use it. Well, and much of that is cultural, right? Much of the d- adoption delay is cultural as opposed to technical or otherwise. Well, and, and just to sort of understand, yes, what, what's the capability of the technology? And the flip is, if you're if you're an enterprise company introducing a technology to a hospital, what's going to make the most sense is to introduce it in a way that's the most familiar to them. So you don't really rework the workflow. Right. You do it so that it's sort of like exactly what they're used to. But the flip of that, and I, I would love to hear Simon's views on this, is that then you replicate all the crappiness of the original workflow. But I imagine that, that just the transformation to which you're aspiring has got to take a little while. And maybe it's naive to think you're going to be able to do it all of it in one step where the reality is going to be multiple steps. So I started at that naive perspective. And when I was at Cerner, I realized I had a good grounding in clinical medicine. I had a good grounding in technology, but I was totally awash from a business 
skills perspective. And I went back to business school. My major was in uh, change management of my MBA. And I learned all of these things that I wish I had learned years before. And you're absolutely right. Um, the other thing at the time was the way these implementation, implementation models were staggered. They were waterfall projects, which kind of meant in the public system where I came from, you had a problem, you wrote a business case that eventually became a tender. Um, you went through a tendering process. You found the right person um, or organization that you were going to bet on. There was a design and build process that went for about two years, and then you would deliver 10 years later the system that addressed the need that you started out with. And when we're looking at an, an evolving health system, coming up with that frozen model of we've got a problem now and in 10 years we're going to have the fix to it, just doesn't cut it. And there's also the, the system of, of whispers whereby as you start to amplify the problem and code against it and make compromises, what you end up with can be quite different to what the starting intent was. I think we've come a long way. The current model of innovation that I'm seeing in practice at the coalface now is very much iterative, scrum-based design so that you go in and you deliver a minimum viable product. And if that meets the requirements, you can start to, in sprints, augment and, and build upon that. And that's, that seems to be far more effective in not only delivering a better fit for the problem at hand, but also engaging the end users. And that's so important in healthcare IT. So, Simon, I know after business school, you, you had, I guess you could have gone back to medicine, but you went to Microsoft, um, which clearly is not an EMR vendor or anything like it. Um, what is it that you, what drew you there? What was the thing that drew you there? And um, how did that change your perspective? So my epiphany that if a system of record is where you capture the data and that becomes the longitudinal documentation and audit, I was looking for a company that did one or more of real-time communication, uh, asynchronous teaming and collaboration and knowledge management, business intelligence and using the data asset effectively, and then mobility and point-of-care solutions. So when I started to evaluate companies against that criteria, I came up with a whole lot of non-traditional in that they were not health-specific companies. And Microsoft was on the list. They seemed to do all of that. Um, they had a health business in Australia. Um, and the more I started to learn about it, the more I realised this could be a great complement to the EMR activities that I'd spent the last eight years focusing on. So what was the most profound example of value you saw that was coming from other industries that you could apply to healthcare? Not necessarily other industries, but one of the things that I'm really interested in now is this whole concept of proxy diagnostics. We've got a health system that's charging ahead in our developed world, and we can sequence genomes. We can get high-powered medical imaging tests and blood tests for all sorts of things. And if you can afford it, great. If you can't, um, those, those things aren't available to you. 
So one of the ideas of these proxy diagnostic tests that really lit me up early in my career at Microsoft was um, through a hackathon process called the Imagine Cup. Microsoft runs it each year. It's open to students of of all ilk, and many of them choose health-related topics. And this team that I worked with in Australia called Inemia had the had the business problem they started with, which was anemia is um, the biggest killer antenatally around the world. Um, and many of the people who are anemic don't get diagnosed. They're in developing countries. And that's because clinically, it's actually really hard to assess. Um, the sensitivity is about 20 to 80%. So most of us default back to a blood test. Um, anemia had the idea that Mobile phones are everywhere, and we can actually take a selfie of the conjunctiva of their eye, send that up to the cloud, and with machine learning, do a screen for for anemia. And they started out at 90% accuracy, um, but as they refined that model, they ultimately won the Imagine Cup. They came came closer to 90, 95, and 97%. So now we've actually got an effective tool that we can roll out around the world. You don't need a blood test. Um, You can screen yourself for anemia. And I love examples of this as well. I'm working with another company that instead of getting um, sequenced for a rare disease, um, you can take a selfie of your face and using machine vision and artificial intelligence, come up with the likelihood of various genetic diseases that have facial dysmorphism and be able to screen for them rather than getting your whole genome sequence. So I love this idea of proxy diagnosis. This sounds like it could be really interesting also for some of the folks at the um, your neighboring Gates Foundation up there. I imagine you have a healthy dialogue with them. It's not as tight as you'd expect. Um, so we, we try and <laughs> clearly Bill Gates, um, founder of Microsoft, but known for his philanthropy work. We've had to keep those walls quite separate for compliance reasons, um, but clearly they, they care about some of the same causes we do. So you've gone from an Australian medical a chief medical officer role to a global chief medical officer role over the past year or so. From your trial, and, and, and I think about, it's so interesting because the U.S. is often touted as, you know, the mecca for best healthcare, but I think there's a lot we can learn from the rest of the world. And I'm wondering what? what you've seen in your travels. I know, I know you're shocked, David. What you've seen in your travels that the U.S. should be importing to improve our healthcare system. Yeah. Um, so it's true that the U.S. has spent the most what? and there's been the most activities around electronic medical records, especially in recent times as a result of meaningful use. Um, however, when I look around the rest of the world, well, they don't necessarily have the same budgets, but they're tackling the same problems, sometimes in a more socialised sense. So they've got an ability to come together and collaborate in ways that the US system uh, traditionally doesn't. I was Two weeks ago, I was in Finland, and I thought it was extraordinary. Uh, I spent some time with the largest hospital provider there called HUS, and they cover 60% of the population, both acute and primary care. They work incredibly closely with the the national government, and there's a framework of trust that allows them to bring all of that information together, which is really interesting, and a legislative framework that supports that. 
So for more than 10 years, they've had holistic data on their patients. Um, they've abstracted it from all the various systems that they have into a data lake. And with that data lake, they're now reinventing their models of care, so heavily leveraging virtual and telehealth technologies um, and using artificial intelligence and chatbots so that they can better distribute their precious clinical resources across the, the patient demand. So I'd call out the Nordics as one area that's very advanced in terms of their preventative care, um, the quality of care that they deliver, and I think they're more adaptive in shifting our last century hospital-based model into the next generation, how do we prevent disease and address chronic illness. So it's pretty impressed with that. Um, but there's a, also the regulation aspect, and regulation is important. It protects our privacy and all the rest of it. But some countries that don't have the regulatory overheads have been making great inroads with agility that we can't in the US. I'm seeing mixed and augmented reality being used throughout the surgical process in ways in, in Japan, in Latin America, in India, in ways that we'd struggle to do here in the US. Boy, Simon, it's so interesting to hear because um, one of the things that um, I've been you know, that everyone's been talking about recently is how, particularly on the tech front, how incredibly progressive the FDA is and has become. I mean, to the point where I kind of usually advise people that most of the internal, most of the blockers to innovation within, you know, pharma, I imagine other companies are, you know, in, internal conservative um you know, uh, views of like, oh, we can't do this. The FDA won't allow it versus actual FDA blocking it. Because I think people like Sean Cozen and others are are, are, are so receptive or, or almost so thirsty for uh, for tech innovation. It's surprising. This is the first I've heard an example where someone, you know, who's really thought about this like you thinks that maybe uh, our regulators are, get, are still getting in the, are, are still getting in the way in, a, in an unhelpful fashion. So FDA has come ahead and needs, to, needs a, to be applauded for what they've done. But it's broader than just FDA. I think about HIPAA as a privacy um, and information management framework, and that also needs some modernisation. So when I look at... Uh, what's happened in Europe with the whole concept of general data protection regulation, GDPR, that's a modern framework that's meant to address this whole idea of digital data, digital identity, and how it gets shared in a secure and compliant fashion. Um, I know that some places within the US are looking at that closely, as is the rest of the world. And I think it's when all of these regulatory aspects come together and work in harmony that we can actually start to, with agility, foster innovation. So, Simon, let me ask you a question um, that that's... Um you know, I've connected with a lot of folks, as you know, I think we even connected when I was writing about the topic, um, you know, chief medical officers, and particularly the roles of CMO at tech companies. And I didn't, I'm not sure this quite made my piece, but the people I know in general who are some of the most unhappy MDs I know, actually, are MDs who are like at tech companies, where there's, they feel like they're surrounded by all of this technology, all of this potential. But at the end of the day, I think they, they would love to feel like they're on product teams and, and really driving the vision. 
Whereas it, it, a lot of times I feel like they've been frustrated by, at the end of the day, what's really a, a very predominant tech-driven culture. You know, it was sort of like, yeah, you sort of get to ask your, you know, people ask your opinions and, you know, go out there and make nice to the doctors. But I think they're really struggling. And this is many people in many types of tech companies. Um, wh- what, are, what have your observations been as someone in that role at a leading company? Yeah, so I, I sit on a, a group um, called the Global Chief Medical Officers Network. It's uh, supported by Booth. It's got some of the largest companies in the world, and they're not just health companies. There's um, aviation and airline and consulting and banking and all the rest of it. The first thing I'd say is the, the Chief Medical Officer role doesn't seem to be standardised. In fact, in many companies, the chief medical officer is responsible for the health and wellness of the employee population, which is not what I do. I'm essentially... No, no, that's not what I'm talking about, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, So back to your point about tech companies having a strong culture of maybe it's engineering. Microsoft certainly has a strong engineering culture. I heard something about that. (laughs) Cerner has a strong sales culture. Um, and how do you nuance in the the clinical function within that? Um, so that's that's something that I put a lot of time and effort into. I get enormous satisfaction out of educating my peers within Microsoft about why this is important, why it's nuanced within health. Um, but there there are days when it's difficult to get that message through or to to get the awareness that you need. But by the by the same token, Rome wasn't built in a day. You you do need to put in that time, that effort, and I feel like at this stage I'm with the company where health is a priority and my voice is heard. So speaking of health being a priority in real life, I know you have three kids, two who have special needs. How does that inform your life and work as a physician in technology? It, it certainly made me more aware of the two conditions my kids have. So my eldest is on the autistic spectrum and he's high functioning. Um, and my middle guy has attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And as I, as I look at how we have diagnosed and then traditionally treated these conditions, many of the neurodiversities have been poorly acknowledged. They've been labelled a disability, sometimes treated just uh, simply with medication, and there's so much more that we can do with it. So as I start to explore some of these engaging technologies that help us learn um, and and do things in different ways, I can see the applicability for both my kids and an opportunity for society at large. Um, when I particularly look at autism, I know Microsoft's got a hiring practice for autistic people, and it's because we recognise that these kids and as they become adults, love technology. They're fabulous at scanning through patterns and detecting um, things that don't match and don't fit. And then finally, they, they don't get bored with routine work. They find a lot of security in it. So I'd like to think that we flip this idea of neurodiversity as a disability and start to see it as a strength and find the right place for these people to have meaningful work. That's wonderful. That's terrific. Very cool. So Simon, it's just been uh, great to have you on the show today. Really appreciate your time and all that you have to say. My great pleasure. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you. Take care. Thank you for joining us, Simon. 
Today's guest, Simon Cause, Chief Medical Officer of Microsoft, was speaking to us today as we sit here, David and I, in Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Interesting show. He's such a good guy, right? He's a really lovely man, and I think he's so genuinely desires to make things better for people in medicine, for patients, for for people in the world. I really appreciate I agree. I, I love the, what, what his ambitions are, and he seems to sort of have the... Um, uh, uh, the right mindset for you. First of all, passion for technology, mm-hmm. a real interest in health, and a sense of uh, patience. Um, you know, with you know, you know patience, I N C I E N, however you spell it, <laughs> uh, issues. But uh, but but he, you know, realizing that it's a process and it's going to take uh, take a fair amount of time. For sure. Well, you can follow David's writing at Forbes, and you can follow Lisa soon at adventurevalkyrie.com. We're grateful to Metadata for their sponsorship today. Metadata, the intelligent platform for life sciences that closes the loop between clinical development and commercialization to power smarter treatments and healthier people. Take care. Bye, Clippy. (laughs) 